Welcome to the Perp Web Podcast, hosted by Joe Bosch. Okay, so there we are. So, you know, and I went and did some exploring on this, and I got a somewhat of an update on it. So this novel inflammatory syndrome they're seeing in children, possibly linked to COVID-19, I think this is a very, this is a big issue that I think we need to be keeping an eye on. Now, right now, the numbers are very, very low, but let's talk about what they are seeing if we can. The symptoms are sort of atypical Kawasaki disease or toxic shock syndrome. Uh, they have fever, they have a red rash, abdominal pain, vomiting, diarrhea. Interestingly enough though, less than 50%, and it's actually less than 40%, had any respiratory symptoms at all. Now, the clinical presentation is persistent fever, rash, conjunctivitis is very common with this, peripheral edema, extremity pain, and GI symptoms. In the 11 patients from the UK, they developed a warm vasoplegic shock syndrome that was not responsive to volume. Now keep in mind, they don't know that this is COVID-19 or affiliated with COVID-19 in any way, but it, this is novel and something they're not used to seeing. So, you know, it, there's, there's kind of an association. We have this coronavirus going on and now we have this but it's unresponsive to volume. They did require all of the patients, Levo and Milrinone. Um, seven of them required ventilatory support for cardiovascular stabilization. And uh, this was despite not having respiratory symptoms, which was uh, very interesting and concerning. The syndrome progressed with small pleural and pericardial effusions, mild ascites, elevated CRP, C-reactive protein, uh, pro-callus, uh, uh, that, ferritin and D-dimers. One child developed refractory shock and required ECMO, and one died from a large, which is that patient, died from a large cerebrovascular infarct. All tested negative for the active virus, SARS-CoV-2. In a, second in a second wave of 20 that have now been in the ICU, and this is in New York, this is in Massachusetts, and this is in, uh, yeah, New York and Massachusetts, have seen similar clinical presentations, and 10 of those 20 are SARS-CoV-2 antibody positive. Yeah, so that's the, that's, that's the last slide. So this is something new and nobody, this is all we know. This is all I know. And what I was able to, to discern or ascertain from the uh, Medscape news that exists. And uh, my friend Praveen says that they are seeing these patients. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out. But the belief is that it is a post-infection abnormal immune response. So, you know, is it is it related to the COVID? Again, the numbers are very, very low. It's, it's right now very rare. Um, they're not having any kind of outbreak, if you will, but it's something we better keep an eye on because especially for our pediatric colleagues, but if this is affecting younger people, does an 11 year old 
go to a pediatric hospital or they just show up in the ER of a regular hospital so my adult perfusionist may be confronted with an 11 year old or 12 year old or 13 year old certainly if it's a baby uh, it's going to go to, to the children's hospital and should or somebody who is competent with a, a, a pediatric or neonatal ECMO unit I, I that's something that's very important but keep your eyes open for this and 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 let's see what happens with it but it concerns me um, as we did these programs, I, you know, and we got into this COVID thing, of course, first, I had already started with the online education, recognizing that there was a need, there was a void. But COVID, from the time that occurred and all of the travel restrictions and all of the meetings got canceled, we have seen our membership grow tremendously. So we're seeing, you know, a lot of people, um, probably a three to 500% jump in the number of people using our resource uh, to get their CEUs. And of course, we're getting close to the end of the reporting cycle. So that number typically does go up anyway. I saw that when I did conferences, but uh, we're seeing it again play out in this. And I think that uh, we were just in the right place at the right time with the right tool uh, when all of this happened. So we did start this over a year and a half ago, almost two years ago. Uh, and I'm glad we were here when this happened because it certainly has helped us to gain a broader audience. And again, without, a, without an audience, we don't have a show. I mean, that, that, that's the bottom line, right? Um, healthcare professionals, and how has this helped us with delivering uh, services? Well, healthcare professionals with childcare responsibilities, let's, let's, let's consider them, let's look at that. How many single parents, moms or dads, uh, exist? How many parents that, 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 that maybe this, uh, the, the household is still completely intact, mom and dad are at home, you have kids that are in school, maybe you have two or three kids, both people are in healthcare. Maybe both are perfusionists. And all of this is happening. Or maybe they're in a different profession altogether. But the problem is healthcare went, uh, daycare went away. Childcare schools shut down. Now the kids have nowhere to go, but the parents may be on call. Well, now what do you do? How are you gonna cover call? How are you gonna deal with emergencies? How are you gonna deal, because as a business, because we have two parts to us and I keep them very separated for, 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 for good reason. Um, we wanna always maintain our independence as, a, as an educational platform. But you know, I, I do run a perfusion service company. Um, and as such, you know, when all of this happened, we went into Everybody is on call, Meeting, you know, travel is canceled, and I'll get a little more into that because that sort of evolved. It didn't all happen at one time. But no days off, all hands on deck because we had no idea what was really going to happen. As it turns out, for us here in Texas, it didn't really turn out that bad. It wasn't horrible. Um, but regardless of that, was still a stress for everybody because they had to be available. If they have children, what are they gonna do with them? How are they gonna manage that? What if they have elderly parents that need to be taken care of? Um, 
but yet they have this responsibility. I'm on call. I cannot go anywhere. I have to be available to leave at any moment. And that is our profession. That's whether you like it or not, that is a reality of our profession. So healthcare uh, professionals with childcare responsibilities, I think, showed me a lot of our, a lot of deficiencies that we have as a system. Um, and then you get into the issue of employee job responsibilities versus employer responsibilities. So as a, as a service provider, I had to be concerned about, we have obligations to these hospitals. They're expecting that that obligation will be met. So they're going to accept patients for whatever the case may be, whether it be heart surgery or whether it be ECMO or whether, whatever it might be. But we also had, have, including myself, three very at-risk patient populations just by virtue of our ages. Now, not necessarily the comorbidities, but our ages. Our ages put us in a much, uh, much higher category for having a bad outcome associated with getting this disease with COVID-19. And so we had to balance that because I'm not, I don't wanna send my staff into a hospital where they may get infected and then die because that's not good for business either. Losing staff is not good. Um, but at the same time, we have, we, we, there's no, no, no company, no hospital, no service, no industry, it doesn't matter what it is, has unlimited personnel assets. There's just not a secret door that you open up and you have perfusionists or autotransfusionists or whomever it may be hanging on the rack that you can just bring around and pull off and say, okay, you're gonna go there. Not to mention, doesn't matter how many people you have, if they're not licensed in that state, in proximity to it, because travel was, was, was banned without some good cause, now that would probably meet good cause, then you have credentialing, then you have what about their own personal situation? What if they get sick while they're traveling? It gets very, this was a very stressful event, albeit it didn't turn out that bad for us. We were nothing like New York, nothing at all, um, which I'm grateful for. However, had we gotten like New York, had that happened, I can tell you that I'm pretty sure we would have been overwhelmed very quickly. I learned a lot about what we aren't able to do more than I learned what we can do, which are lessons that I really have to take and analyze and figure out what am I going to do the next time something like this occurs. We had uh, we had to make decisions about furloughing or not furloughing because what happened to us, in contrast to what happened in New York, what happened to us, or New York City more specifically really, what happened to us was our caseload, because they shut it down, no elective cases. Our caseload went to nothing. I mean nothing. And as an organization, and perfusionists are not inexpensive, we all know that, do we start furloughing? 
do we tell people to take mandatory vacation? Well, how can you do that if you're saying we need all hands on deck because we don't know what's going to happen? And I think that's what really got us is there wasn't a flood of these patients to where it was like just bedlam and chaos and just having to just deal with one patient after another at a time. It was this constant uncertainty of what is going to happen tomorrow. Is this going to be a flood coming or is it gonna stay like this? We're not doing any elective cases to keep every operating room available for ICU overflow. Um, and listen, I know, I know somebody in Nashville that took an entire floor of a humongous parking garage and built it out to an ICU. Never had one patient in it that I'm aware of. Um, so, but if you didn't do that, and then you did get the flood, then what were you gonna do? And I think that also brings up some issues of, like as I said, you know, do we start furloughing people or do we just keep going the way we're going? I mean, we have no revenue coming in. We gotta pay people. Um, of course, the government uh, PPP definitely helped. There was no question about that. That saved us from an economic perspective, but, um, but it's contradictory, you know, and this is something that's always bothered me in my life. And I've been around a long time. I've done everything. I've been a, I've been a, a, a perfusionist for a hospital employee. I've worked for private perfusion groups. I've worked for smaller, I've worked for big corporation perfusion groups. I've worked for surgical groups. I've run my own business where I was the, you know, the, 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 the kind of eat what you kill sort of thing, sole provider, sole uh, independent practice did the traveling thing a little bit. So I've run kind of the gamut of all of these different ways that we can deliver perfusion services. Um, but uh, the, uh, the, the, the thing that's bothered me through my lifetime has been when I've seen hospitals, when they're, when they're slow, they have low census, and they start calling people off and you can choose to take your vacation and uh, get paid or you can choose to take the day off without pay, one or the other, but it's mandatory. You, or you get, and they do it on a rotation and it's just an accepted practice. But then when it's super busy, they will require you, and I see this more in nursing service, but I've seen it in perfusion too, require you to stay. You don't have a choice. And I've always felt that was unfair. So as an organization, we made a conscious decision to say, if we're gonna tell people that your vacations are canceled, you cannot go anywhere, even though travel was highly not recommended, and you have to be on call and available at the drop of a hat, 24 seven, no days off, until this is over, and we say, you know, we're, we're opening it back up again, then I think doing anything other than keeping them whole would have been um, a, a terrible thing to do and something that I was not supportive of. And as an organization, we didn't do that. We were able to keep our entire company from the most senior perfusionist, senior autotransfusionist and their staffs, uh, staffs all the way to our office staff 
and everything in between. We made zero changes because it would have been unfair. But what did we do? Because people are sitting around. We still don't know if the flood is coming, but right now it's not and uh, time is passing and it doesn't seem like we're going to have a flood and you start getting a handle on what it, what's gonna really happen here. So uh, we started giving them projects to do and they did some incredible work, uh, things that really needed to be done. Um, our, our, our carts and the hospitals, we tried to limit travel to hospitals, but our carts and the hospitals, the condition of the pumps, our, our inventory because we provide supplies. They got their bios done for our new website, which we're gonna be launching here pretty soon. Right, David? Yeah. Website's coming, website's coming. Brand new website for our company. I'm really proud of it. Um, and I think you'll really enjoy it too. Um, we're, we, we're, we're working on an app. Uh, we're doing these programs, educational programs. I know you've seen Tammy here. You saw Mike Brown, you saw Patrick O'Toole, you saw Mintran, you saw Nate. Uh, Bader, um, you've seen uh, Stephanie Ebus, um, you saw Rodell Ebus, so uh, you've seen, you know, seen people. And we made good use of people's time that they had um, and not just sitting around sheltering in place with not knowing what's going to happen and gave them something to do which gave them a sense of security that things are going to work out okay. I think sometimes people consider uh, perfusionists or sometimes even, you know, higher, well, let's just say that the higher paid allied health medical professionals that exist in this world, that somehow they can absorb a, uh, a, a lot more financially. And you know, it's just not true. We're not, we're not none of us are rich. Um, well, maybe a few are, but most of us aren't. And it's just human nature. People live to their means. We don't know what people's responsibilities are, if they're helping their parents, if they're helping their kids and all of this kind of stuff, older kids maybe they have. So uh, to assume that this didn't affect those people or that sitting home sheltering in place is not going to have a psychological impact on them. And what about all the rest of the people? You know, I talk about us as healthcare professionals. I talk about how we deliver perfusion services. We had to be ready. You gotta keep your staff safe. I think there were good mechanisms in place to do that. The N95 masks that the hospitals had, um, the papper suits that the hospitals had. I mean, they didn't want their staff getting sick or hurt either. So I think everybody did a really good job at protecting the health of the healthcare professionals that had to go to work, at least here in our area. Here in the Houston, greater Houston area, I know we did that. Um, and uh, I think that we did an exceptional job and I think we would have been able to handle a lot. But based on what I know, what I saw from New York, had we matched that, I don't, I don't think there is anywhere in the country, and I really believe this, I think this is a national, probably international problem, really, I don't think there's anywhere in the world, who is truly prepared for something like this where you have an overwhelming number of people coming in with severe respiratory distress, uh, needing to be on the vent, 
possibly needing to go on ECMO. There aren't enough platforms. There aren't enough people to know how to run them. And there's way more hospitals that don't have ECMO than there are that do have ECMO. So if you started doing transfers, the ECMO centers, those hospitals that have it, would have been overwhelmed so rapidly. Um, and so we're not prepared. I mean, really, bottom line is we are not prepared. Now, we did a great job. Uh, I think New York did a fantastic job with what they had. Um, I think that, uh, you know, everyone worked together very well. But if you remember, this all started in Washington State. And Washington State did not get nearly as bad as what everybody thought it was going to. And New York blew up. And I still have not figured that out. Of course, New Orleans had Mardi Gras, so it's not surprising. They fell apart. Okay, so, you know, I think, uh, I think we did a good job in terms of having the staff and every single little department would have to do this so that you had a big collection. I think we made good decisions about stopping the uh, no time off, basically putting everybody on full call, keeping every employee whole when things started slowing down, because I think that shows the commitment that we're willing to give back. And I think more, more hospitals, more uh, uh, companies that did that will pay dividends in the long run, because that's an important feature, I think, that cannot be understated. We got that from our employees because they were committed to our patients which is what our business is based upon when we realized it wasn't going to be bad, keeping those people whole was a critically important thing to do because that's how you have the proverbial, if you will, two-way street, right? So that's, uh, that's that on that. Um, our caseloads did evaporate. As I told you, it was very, very painful. Uh, but I want to talk about something else which I think fascinates me. I understand listening to the, uh, the various uh, information channels that I listen to uh, and resources that I read that cancer diagnoses have dropped precipitously. Um, I don't think COVID-19 cures cancer. And that's something that I'm worried about. When you talk about STEMIs and ACS, time door to balloon is critical to saving muscle. But our cath lab volume of STEMI and non-STEMI and ACS have, have dropped incredibly. Where are those patients? Well, I, I mean, I can kind of tell you. What about grandma with her broken hip? Because that's a very common thing to have happen. Uh, we, had, we didn't see a hip replacement for I don't know how long. And I find that to be incredible. Where did all those patients go? Um, and it's something that really does concern me is um, I, I fear, and this is a prediction that I have, I fear that we will see when the death toll, not percentages and all this kind of self stuff, I'm talking about the death toll. I think when we get to that, um, and then analyze it, you will find that the death toll of patients that died 
from something other than COVID, a treatable disease that we would have normally been able to take care of quite easily, is going to exceed the death toll from the coronavirus. I, I truly do believe that. And it's going to be very interesting to see if that if that vets itself out or that 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 in fact is the data. I'm going to be watching that very closely and uh, really curious to see if that's what happens. Um, you know, I will tell you about a patient uh, that we recently took care of. Uh, and I know I've told you in the past from previous programs about uh, the coronavirus patient we did. And by the way, our program, our next program scheduled in, uh, at, in, in June, uh, it's June, right? Or is it June 11th? Yeah. Well, it's the 13th is going to be that first uh, COVID-19 ECMO patient here in the uh, state of Texas, which was here in the greater Houston area. Uh, and he's going to be here and talk about his story and how all of that uh, happened. Uh, but we recently had another case of a patient who came in uh, with COVID-like symptoms. And I think this is going to be something that's going to happen a lot now. And I'm worried about this, too. Um, and they were tested and they were negative. But nobody believed it was negative. They still believed that this person had it. So they tested again. That was also negative. So they tested again. In fact, they tested five times, five. All five tests were negative. The patient overnight decompensated. Now they were, this is over a course of a few days because they got admitted, um, they got better, they got sent back home, then they came back. Um, on the second admission, overnight, they went from talking and on some supplemental oxygen to full-blown code, needing intubation, lungs were stiff. There were major, major problems. And we had to rush and get that patient on uh, VV ECMO and uh, stabilize them, uh, and then transported that patient to a different facility. Nevertheless, they tested the patient again. So six tests now, still negative. Now, finally, looking at an alternate cause, it ended up being Wegner's granulomatosis, which is an inflammatory disease of the respiratory tract and blood vessels. It looked like COVID, but it wasn't COVID. The question that I have is, you know, was that, was that jump, if you will, to it's COVID, it's COVID. I don't believe the negative test to another one. It's COVID, it's COVID, it's COVID. It looks like COVID. It has to be COVID. I think there's a lot of things that historically would have been identified sooner if you're not just looking through loops or a, tel a telescope and seeing just one little spot when there's this, all this other stuff out there. And so that's, um, that's something that's concerning me as well and something that we need to keep an eye on uh, with these patients. Now, how we do cases, um, certainly there's gonna be societal impact. They are opening some restaurants up and stuff like that. We're kind of getting back to our normal lives and I'm gonna be happy about that. But are we ever really going to get back to normal in the hospital, which is where we all work? 
You know, right now they're intubating the patient uh, for surgery with no one in the room except for anesthesia. Uh, we're wearing masks everywhere we go in the hospital. Uh, it's going to affect turnover time, so the cases are going to take a little longer to get the next case in the room. And how will it affect staffing when the trigger for staying home now is so light? I've got a little fever. I don't feel good. Things aren't right. I can't go to work, you know, and, and, and you shouldn't go to work sick. I understand that. But there's a lot of reasons why you may not feel great and it may not be infectious. You may not be in You may not be infectious. It may not be something that you wouldn't ordinarily stay home from. But because of the very high, the very, the very, the very high concern level, if you will, um, people are going to say, don't come to work. Don't go to work. Just stay home. Well, I mean, how do we manage staffing with that? What's that going to do to the balance that we have? of supply, demand, cost, and, 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 uh, and revenue. You know, we can't just hire enough people to account for all of these potential issues without passing that cost on to someone, the hospital. And then the hospital passes it on to the insurance company and to the patients. And then that gets passed on back to you in the form of your premiums or whatever, or taxes or whatever it may be. So this is going to have very far reaching implications over the next, I would imagine five to six years at least, uh, certainly much a lot over the next year or two, but I think it's gonna drag on for five, six years, possibly even a decade. So that's all I got for you. This has been, again, a pleasure to talk to you about uh, what we've been able to provide to you here with some great talks, you know, from Dr. Simpkins and Praveen and John Ingram and Matt Warhoover and, and, and all the other folks, even me. Um, we've had some, Dr. Garami called in. We've had some really good speakers. Uh, we've had some great presentations. We've had some great discussions back and forth. And uh, we're wrapping up the Corona 30 and getting ready for our next scheduled, our typical schedule that we usually do, one a month on, on a Thursday and a Saturday. Uh, we're probably gonna try to do and add a little bit more as we, as we go along. And I wanna encourage you to please go to our websites, go and write me an email and if you go look at our websites now and go to the resident faculty list, you will find a list that's pretty doggone impressive. Um, and we want you on it too. You, you know, if you like to teach, if you like to, if you're, if you're a content expert on something or you enjoy sharing information, you have a case report you'd like to do. It doesn't matter to me what it is. If you have something that is of value for our colleagues to hear that we can learn from, the experience, the knowledge, whatever it may be, anecdotes, it, it, it's, it's all important. And every single one of us, every single practicing clinician has something that they can share, an experience they can share that can help somebody else, and usually a lot of people. So I truly encourage you to go to that website, contact at perfusioneducation.com, send us an email, let's get involved. I've got several people have already sent us stuff. 
So you're going to start seeing, again, some new faces, some new presentations, some new concepts. We're going to try to keep it fresh, new, different topics, keep it pithy, keep it exciting, keep it inclusive, keep it fun, and make it better as time goes on. Again, thank you for allowing us into your homes and offices. Thank you for giving us this platform. Because you, we have an audience, we have a show. So I have to thank all of you and thank all of our incredible faculty that have been here up to this point and even those who will be here in the future. So I will see you June 11th, I believe at 5 p.m., somewhere around there. It's on, our, it's on our, our station. You can take a look at our site and see what the date is, see what the topics are. It's already approved, I think, for 7.8 Category 1 CEU by the ABCP. We want to keep collaborating with other institutions. We're just going to really do a lot to keep making this the best platform and uh, right now, I think we are by far, but I want to be even better. I'm not settling for this. We're just going to keep going and making it better. And I want you guys to be a part of that growth. So thank you. We'll see you in June.